So welcome to the Origins of the Ebola Virus Part 2. Once again, this is Arik, and I'm here with Margaret. Hello. Hello, all. Thank you for... um, I hope that nobody was too traumatized by the googly guck in um, (laughs) our previous Ebola episode. There remains to be googly guck in this episode, um, forewarning. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. There will be, you know, some talk of less less guts, but still guts. Definitely still lots of blood. It is Ebola after all. Yep, um, yep. So same warning as last time. Yeah. Um, you know, we're discussing Ebola. So if you don't like blood and disease, maybe this isn't the episode for you. But we have a nice back catalog for you to refer back to if you fall into that group. Yes. So just as a quick recap, last week we really summarized, you know, the origins of the virus in Africa. Um, And we talked about, you know, Marburg. We talked about a couple different strains of Ebola, being Ebola Sudan and Ebola Zaire. Um, One other thing I wanted to call out was that uh, I believe Zaire is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. So if you were trying to look up Zaire and you couldn't find it on a map or something, that's why. It's because this book is a little bit older, um, back when it was Zaire. Anyway, so we said we would start with talking about Nancy Jacks. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Nancy Jacks. Um, so towards the beginning of this book, um, Nancy Jacks is a major in the U.S. Army, um, and her husband is also a major. Um, Gerald, Jerry Jacks, and Nancy Jacks. Um, They're both members of the Army Veterinary Corps, which is a very small corps of Army vets, and they take care of their guard dogs, horses, cows, sheep, pigs, mules, rabbits, mice, and monkeys. And they also inspect the Army's food. So these two play a pretty critical role at USAMRID, which we introduced last time as the um, Army's kind of research facility on infectious diseases and things of that nature. Um, so when they're introducing Nancy Jacks and the kind of work that she does, uh, they have this pretty interesting ad- anecdote, and I think I'll kind of walk through that to start with. So, you know, they have a busy household. The two of them are working full time. They're vets. They have two kids. Um, a and slew of pets, of course, as any any good vet does. Right. Have their slew of pets. Yeah, and weird pets too. They have of not course. just like a terrier, but like a parrot and a bunch of other weird stuff. And she has a snake in there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you a said, big boa. Vet like animal people, you know. Um. So anyway, she's trying to like make lunch or something and she tries to open a can um so i'll just read from here her father had always warned her not to use a knife to open a can but nancy jackson never made a point of listening to her father's advice she jabbed the butcher can knife into the van can wow i just failed on every count of reading that uh, hey hey it happens you just you gotta push through you got it yeah you're still literate she hit the handle with the heel of her right hand. All of a sudden, her hand slipped down the braid. Keep going. Keep going. Struck the tang of the blade and slid down the blade. She felt the edge bite deep. The butcher knife clattered to the floor and big drops of blood fell on the counter. Son of a bitch, she said. The knife had sliced through the middle of her right hand on the palm. It was a deep cut. 
And then basically, you know, she realizes that she hasn't sliced a tendon or anything like that. Her hands worked. She threw a Band-Aid on and uh, went to bed. And then she goes to work the next day. What happens at work the next day, Arik? Tell me. Tell me. So. Feed me more. The next day at work, it's important to note that Major Nancy Jack was in... Nancy Jacks was in residency at USAMRID for veterinary pathology, and she had found her way um, to her specialty being biosafety level four agents. So things like Lassa virus, um, Ebola, and uh, very Marburg, things of that nature. Which she had to work hard for. As a woman veterinarian in this time, there's bits and pieces in there um, in the book that talk about how, you know, she had people who were in charge of her kind of push her away from doing that kind of work. I think it was along the lines of they told her that, um, well, you're you're a mother and a woman. You cannot work in this level for environment um, because we won't have your full attention. In yeah. The workplace. Yeah, it's a very good thing to call out. There's actually a quote here. So when she first applied to join the pathology group, the colonel in charge didn't want to accept her. And this is a quote. Um, this work is not for a married female. You're either going to neglect your work or neglect your family. Um, and then it goes on and describes a little bit more of the back and forth for her to like, you know, say, I deserve this job and I want this job, um, which is a crazy thing. I mean, imagine. I mean, it makes sense, but in 2022, imagine someone saying that to a female in a workplace. Well, I think what's really interesting about the veterinary field in particular, because um, I've I've talked to a lot of vets who were vets in that in that this time period, which is like the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was many many women were kind of told like you shouldn't do that, like being a vet is a man's job sort of things really pushed away. I have met and spoken to many veterinarians who they were the only woman in their whole program, their graduating class, everything. It is now predominantly a female field. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's interesting. It is interesting. Like I you you'll be hard pressed to find a male only um veterinary office near you, wherever you are. Well, maybe not wherever you are. I'm not sure what it's like um outside of the u.s i guess yeah um predominantly female field which i think um is an interesting thing i think for me that definitely made nancy jacks like a even stronger character yeah book for sure yeah i think a strong character is a great way of describing her throughout like she is she has a lot of personality in the book and like she is in some insane situations and just seems to keep her cool like no matter what and has to i think one thing right is she because she's a female in this it's it's the 80s she's working as a veterinarian in the army she's around a bunch of really strong-headed men and she has to you know kind of stand her ground a lot yeah Um, and she does she does very well yeah um yeah yeah i like that i like nancy jacks in general as a character um she was awesome i would love to you know meet nancy jacks or talk to her um about about this stuff it'd be super interesting um so anyway, she she manages to get into the pathology group. And when you start there, you start with biosafety level two, then you go to level three. 
and you don't get to go to level four unless you have a lot of experience and even then the army may or may not let you do that so you need a ton of vaccinations you need a lot of training all of these um things but basically what happened to nancy jacks is her immune system reacts really badly to some of these vaccinations so the army yanked her out of the vaccination program and then she was in trouble because she couldn't proceed with any more level three work because she couldn't take more vaccines so the only way she could keep working because she couldn't the only way she could keep working on these infectious agents because she couldn't get vaccines was by going up to level four because there's no vaccinations for that shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because a level four hot agent is a lethal virus for which there is no vaccine and no cure. Um, So anyway, she manages to get into level four and into this Ebola project. Um, One couple of quotes from the general feeling at the Institute about people who worked with Ebola is... um, To mess around with Ebola is an easy way to die. Better to work with something safer, such as anthrax. (laughs) (laughs) Which, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty terrifying. So she goes in. um, She's been working in level four for a little bit. And this is the day after her, um, her accident with the knife. And she basically has to go into biosafety level four with uh one of the lieutenant colonels to do some um necropsies of uh monkeys that have died from ebola these monkeys were injected with uh the mayinga strain of ebola zaire which is the most deadly strain of ebola known uh at least at the time um and that was the nurse mayinga was also the nurse from the previous episode uh where she went around the big city yeah right Okay. Yes. Yeah, no, that was a good one. That was context. Yeah, there. good to contextualize that. Thank you for that. Um, so anyway, they kind of describe the process of scrubbing into level four. I think there's a couple of interesting things I want to like note on the biosafety level. So like one, they have these cascading levels, two, three, and four, and levels three and four are kept at a negative air pressure. So like if there's any sort of a leak, the air goes from the lower biosafety level into the higher biosafety level. And they've kind of engineered their whole institute around this stuff. And it's like extremely serious. There's like airlocks, decontamination showers. Um, you have to change out of all your clothes and change into sterile clothes um, to go into even level three. And then from level three to go to level four, you have to again change all of your clothes. You have to do another decon shower. And then you have to put on a spacesuit. So you've got basically a spacesuit, which will then have like they each have like their own air circulating throughout the spacesuit um, so that it's there's very little chance of the air in their environment even touching any part of their body. Yep. And they all have to do like a five minute like decontamination shower when they leave as well. Yep. From the spacesuit. Um yeah, so super intense, super Very crazy. Intense. And with this spacesuit, they've got one thing that Margaret and I had talked about is like, I wonder what the dexterity they have in their hands is like, because they've got like a latex glove on under the spacesuit. They have multiple. Multiple. Oh, yeah, they've got in... two under the spacesuit, right? <laughs> yeah. And then the spacesuit itself. So they've got like one, 
And then they put on like this kind of coat thing and they put on another one and they tape the wrist shut. Then they put on the spacesuit, and I'm pretty sure they put gloves on over that as well. Yeah, there's another set of latex gloves over the spacesuit. Um, so yeah, definitely. And of course, they're in an environment where like a cut in your spacesuit is a very, very, very serious issue. Yes. Um, it is. It can be a life or death situation. Um, so then, to imagine that you have to then go in and perform like a basically an autopsy Mm -hmm. using sharp instruments (laughs) with that amount of just stuff on your hands. Um, Yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. You think texting in winter gloves is hard? (laughs) (laughs) Try again. Yeah. And you Um, can't say, Hey Siri, pass me the forceps. (laughs) That was another thing that they talk about in their spacesuits is that it's actually because there's like pressurized air flowing through their spacesuits the whole time it's really hard to hear um each other so when you're working with people like they figure out they kind of learn how to read lips really well they kind of have to yell very short sentences <laughs> yeah. at each other um yeah yeah that's that which is crazy very, as well very difficult work environment i would yeah. say yeah so you don't have dexterity in your hands and fingers you can't really see You have a constant roaring in your ears. You have the knowledge that if you make a mistake, you're very likely going to die. Or sit in quarantine. End up in the slammer. Okay, do you want to talk about the slammer a little bit? Um, Yeah, so then one thing, if you work in a biosafety level four um, at the U.S. Amarin at this time, um, and you have a known contamination of some sort, um, you have to then go spend time in what they call the slammer, which is basically just like a quarantine room. Um, I don't remember for how long you have to sit there. That's our cat food robot, robot dad, robot dad again. Um, um, I think it depends on the contamination, but it's a long time. It's like yeah. two weeks to I mean, four it's weeks, like, right? The what we have is like the COVID quarantine, which is we looked it up last time, a biosafety level three, 14 days. Um, There are, I think it was with Ebola, like maybe the incubation period was up to 28 days, um, something like that. Um, anyway, you have to spend, depend, it depends on the virus that you're working with. You have to spend all of those days in the slammer and you don't have contact with anybody. Like they'll bring you food. Yeah. You're pretty much isolated. And then like nurses in space suits will come in and like give you food and like check your vitals, but you're just locked in like this like windowless room with no human contact worried about whether you're going to break with Ebola and die. Yeah. And not even ever be able to like hug your family goodbye because you're in a quarantine room. Yeah. <laughs> At one point in <laughs> like the book. Like a military research facility. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. At yeah. one point in the book, he talks about it. I don't know where I can't find it right now, but he was talking about basically like people are scared of the slammer there. And like some people go into the slammer and like, if you go in there, you don't come out the same because you Well, were f- it's almost exactly like um, what they call the shoe, right? Yeah, solitary confinement. Yeah, solitary. Like, which is, like, designed and meant to break people mentally. Yeah. Um, and obviously, they're not trying to break their employees mentally, but, like, <laughs> they're quarantined. Um, yep. So, serious situation. Yep. So, okay, so they go into this Ebola room. Yep, Nancy Jacks and Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Gene Johnson. Um, 
and they're trying to do this necropsy. Um, so they carry the monkey out to the table. Um, there's Ebola blood everywhere. You know, the body cavity of the monkey is filled with blood and Nancy Jax is, you know, kind of telling her to slow her hands down, keep breathing, keep her hands out of the gloves as much as possible. Rinse out of the body them. cavity? Out of the body cavity, yeah. Sorry, okay. did I say something else? You said gloves. Oh. It's all good. Keep her gloves out of the body cavity as much as possible. Keep washing them in Envirochem, which is basically like bleach. It's some sort of strong disinfectant. Um, and then they're going about the... Uh, they're going about the... Um, necropsy and then um they are opening the skull so i'll actually read this whole little passage here so um getting into a skull is always a bitch in level four a primate skull is hard and tough and the bone plates are knitted together ordinarily you would whip through a skull with an electric bone saw but you can't use a bone saw in level four it would throw a mist of bone particles and blood droplets into the air and you do not want to create any kind of infective mist in a hot area, even if you are wearing a spacesuit. It is just too dangerous. They popped the skull with the pliers. It made a loud cracking sound. They removed the brain, eyes, and spinal cord and dropped them into a jar of preservative. Johnson was handing her a tube containing a sample when he stopped and looked at her gloved hands. He pointed to her right glove. She glanced down. Her glove. It was drenched in blood but now she saw the hole. It was a rip across the palm of the outer glove on her right hand. Nancy tore off the glove. Now her main suit glove was covered with blood. It spidered down the outer sleeve of her space suit. Great, just great. Ebola blood all over my suit. She rinsed her glove and arm in the disinfectant, and they came up clean and shiny wet. Then she noticed that her hand inside the two remaining gloves felt cold and clammy. There was something wet inside her spacesuit glove. She wondered if that glove was a leaker, too. She wondered if she had sustained a breach in her right main glove. She inspected that glove carefully. Then she saw it. It was a crack in the wrist. She had a breach in her spacesuit. Her hand felt wet. She wondered if there might be Ebola blood inside her spacesuit, somewhere close to that cut on the palm of her hand. She pointed to her glove and said, Hole. Johnson bent over and inspected her glove. He saw the crack in the wrist. She saw his face erupt in surprise, and then he looked into her eyes. She saw that he was afraid. That terrified her. She jerked her thumb towards the exit. I'm out of here, man. Can you finish? He replied, I want you to leave immediately. I'll secure the area and follow you out. Um, so then... Then it goes through um, Nancy kind of sitting... I think that, honestly, what I really, uh, this is another point where I think that Richard Preston's writing is really good, is he does such a good job of, like, capturing what is going through Nancy Jax's mind as she now sits in, like, the five or seven minute decontamination shower. As she's sitting and waiting in this terrifyingly painful agony of, like, has the cut in my hand been soaked with this Ebola monkey blood? Yeah. Um, you know, like trying to, I mean, there's so many things that can go through your mind in five minutes. Oh, you yeah. Know? And it's- especially in that situation. And I think, um, again, I, I think that this section is kind of another part where the writing is incredible to me. He yeah. does a really good job of capturing that. 
Um, it's really like reading fiction in how gripping it is. But the the decon shower is actually seven minutes. Okay, yeah. So it's seven minutes in the dark in the airlock with no clocks, no windows, no anything, while you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, am I going to fucking die of Ebola? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do. You have to go through the decon shower. Right. Um, And ultimately what happens is she um, goes, she rips off that first layer of glove. She gets off the spacesuit. That first layer of glove has blood on it. Right. Yep. And then she goes, and then there's the second layer of glove. And one thing that um, I've actually, you know, seen and had to do with bat bites, actually, is then she takes off that last layer of glove. She's not a hundred percent sure. She needs to be a hundred percent sure if there was a breach in that last layer of glove between the level four world and her skin. Mm-hmm. So she has to fill the glove with water. She sits waits as the glove fills with water she looks for any sign of water leak in her glove and thank goodness nothing there's no breach in the glove she narrowly missed um the blood from the ebola monkey getting into the cut on her hand um thankfully she has to wear four gloves yeah um the even scarier thing about this whole like because of that cut on her hand it they mention in here when she pulls off the last glove glove she does see blood on her hand mixed with the baby powder from the glove mm-hmm. and she's like oh my god like is this ebola blood or is this my blood and are they mixed yeah you know? yeah yeah it's a terrifying moment um and i think again with the writing here is i think he does a really good job of using this situation to set up the rest of um the fear, I guess, for everyone else and all of the other, like, characters here that have to go into biosafety level four um, yeah. areas for the rest of the book. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I wanted to take the time to talk about this just to do the same thing, basically, to contextualize as we talk about this biosafety level four, like, what the conditions and the risks are actually like, because it's amazing that these people work in these conditions on a regular basis. Um, it's nuts. Like you make one mistake and you could very easily be dead. Absolutely. And there's almost nothing that can be done for you. They're working. I mean, these people specifically are working with something where there is, they know there is nothing that can be done for them. It's a 90% kill rate. Yeah. A 90% kill rate. And like, there's nothing that anyone can do for her except um hope that her immune system fights hard (laughs) she lives (laughs) that's kind of that's it um yeah yeah it's it's definitely incredible um work that they have to do um really interesting i i always think right with some of these people like how could you for me i guess it would be so hard to go back to doing regular work (laughs) <laughs> like For a regular sure. job because you have such like a high level of adrenaline um yeah yeah in your in your work life right there and then like to go and have to do like a desk job absolutely or like in nancy jacks's case right like it, she would leave that and then go work at a cat and dog clinic and someone would be like my dog ate a marshmallow and they're like is he gonna die and she would be like yo like no 
know and Problems relax not. and yeah. fuck off. Yeah. Like, do you know the things that I've seen? I yeah. woke up screaming in the middle of the night last night thinking I was infected with Ebola. Yeah. But I guess also at the same time as for for someone like Nancy Jacks, is she has the outlook of she has a family, you know, like it's probably very scary to think about like what happens to your family, to your kids, to your pets, to your partner, um, at the other side of that seven minutes of a decon shower. Oh, for sure. He actually, that's one of the things he mentions here, um, where her husband is actually out of town that day. So while she's sitting in the decon shower or while she's thinking like, shit, I'm going to be in the slammer. She's like, Jerry's in Texas. There's no money in the house. The kids are at home with the... Who's going to pay the babysitter? Yeah, who's going to yeah. pay the babysitter? What are the... How are the kids going to eat if I'm going to be in the slammer? Um, which is... Very practical. Yeah. Very practical thinking. Right. Uh, <laughs> and also crazy. Like, I can't imagine being in that position. I mean, the fear that you would feel, not just for you, but for your kids and, and your family. But then after that, I thought another... It, thing that shows like you know how rock solid nancy jacks is is that oops is that she basically calls her husband tells him what happens and it's like yeah it's not a big deal and he's like freaking out because he's like i told you not to work in ebola in level four this is too dangerous like we have a family and she just lets him get it out of her system and then she's like yeah it's fine jerry it's all good i wasn't exposed it's gonna be just fine that is ice cold like, that is, like, ice runs through that woman's blood. Like, she is... She's worked hard. She's worked her ass off. She's very serious about where she's at. She's Nancy Jax. Shout out to you. Yeah, if you ever hear this, Nancy Jax, you're awesome. <laughs> Drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io. I would love to talk to you. Also me. Yeah. And Margaret. Yeah. I would. You it can... would really be interested. I thought about being an army vet once. Oh, I really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense, um, actually. Uh, but... No, not for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, for a variety of reasons. So, where shall we take this next? Okay. What so does Nancy Jacks go on to do? So, now we need to skip forward quite a bit in this book, and I'm going to try to accelerate the rate at which I'm talking about this stuff because I'm taking way too long to talk about each section of this book because I love this book and <laughs> we're not going to get through it. So, basically, we jump to Reston, which is uh, the city of Reston, Virginia. It's a prosperous community. It's 10 miles outside of D.C. It's like a rich suburb of D.C., basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, like, wealthy government types and stuff there. Yeah. I uh, did some Googling, and they have a Old West-themed water park in Reston also. That's kind of cool. Completely unrelated. But- <laughs> <laughs> Um, but basically, in, in the fall of 1989, there's a company called Hazelton Research Products, and they're using a one-story building in just a low-key office park in Reston as a monkey house. Um, so Hazelton Research Products is a division of Corning Incorporated, and um, they're involved with the importation and sale of lab animals. So the Hazelton Monkey House was known as the Reston Primate Quarantine Unit. Um so this is an interesting thing, just quick on, uh, maybe this is a good time to talk about the monkey trade a little bit, but each year 16,000 wild monkeys are imported into the United States from the tropical regions of the world. Um, they have to be held in quarantine for a month before they're shipped anywhere. Um, and at this time they also introduced Dan Dalgard, who is the uh, another vet, um, who was the consulting veteran at the Reston Primate Quarantine Unit. 
Um, so he's basically on call to take care of the mon- monkeys if they become sick or they need medical attention. And uh, on Wednesday, October 4th, 1989, they got a shipment of 100 wild monkeys from the Philippines. Um, so this was an interesting one here. Do you want to talk about this a little bit, Margaret? The um, I know you had mentioned this is sticking out to you when we had talked about this previously in terms of how, like the supply chain oh, the supply for chain of, the okay. monkeys, um, um, that paragraph, that passage is there. So... They accept the Hazelton Research Products accepts the shipment of 100 wild monkeys from the Philippines. The shipment originated at Fertile Farms, a monkey wholesale facility located not far from the city of Manila. The monkeys themselves came from coastal rainforests on the island of Mindano. Mindano? Mindano. Um, the monkeys had been shipped by boat to Fertile Farms, where they were jammed together in large cages known as gang cages in which the male monkeys often fought and bloodied and killed one another. Um, the monkeys are then put into wooden crates, flown into Amsterdam um, on a specially fitted cargo airplane, and then from Amsterdam, they're flown to um, JFK Airport in um, in New York. Um, and then they're driven by a truck to the Reston Monkey House. The monkeys are crab-eating monkeys. Um, They are a species that lives along along rivers and in mangrove swamps in Southeast Asia. Uh, Crab-eaters, monkeys, are used as laboratory animals because they are common, cheap, and easily obtained. Um, The crab-eater is a type of macaque monkey. So I think that thing with the gang cages is pretty crazy, right? It's like by the time you get it in rest and, you know, they're all in like neatly in crates and like relatively well, you know, handled and it seems like they're in good condition and whatnot. But they start their journey as just being like, well, essentially they have people who are in poverty living in the rainforest and those are the people who are capturing these monkeys then throwing them in like, cages with like 50 monkeys on them on a boat and like shipping it down to this factory the monkeys are just like fighting each other to the death in the cage during the shipment it's crazy so actually i think um one thing is i think it's very much assumed and nice to think that they come all in one piece to jfk um but even in this october 4th 1989 shipment that made it to rest in um Two of the monkeys that arrived were already dead. Um, this was not unusual since monkeys died during shipments. Um, That's crazy. I mean, in a way, the only thing I can think of... I mean, yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Like, the, the conditions are like... This is going to sound bad. I don't know how to make it not sound bad. But it reminded me when reading it of, like, the slave trade almost and, like, the transatlantic shipments of people. Um, are Those conditions from, like, the 1600s are almost similar to these conditions. I think, honestly, it's not that far off. I honestly think the difference is that the monkeys don't have to work during shipment. Um, they just have to survive. Whereas I think, um, from what I understand, in a lot of slave ships, the... Um, the people who would be sold into slavery would have to work on the ship. Um, You know, Um, (laughs) I I think it is honestly very comparable. Um, Yeah. Which is crazy. Which is, which is crazy. Um, 
it's crazy that we ever shipped humans like that and it's crazy that we have to continue shipping monkeys like that but i think the really interesting thing is like you know when you think about the ethics of doing that like from an absolute perspective do i think it's ethical to treat monkeys in this way no but the trade-off right that's where it gets really interesting because how many human lives are saved by the use of primates in medical research I think, honestly, the use of um, animal testing for um, medical reasons is, a, I think, an incredibly interesting ethical dilemma. Because um, there are, of course, in a lot of ways, right, where it is. I think it is unethical to use animals in this way. Um, you know, like, the purpose of most of these monkeys is that they get injected with some sort of disease and then they are, you know, kind of left to die at their own will, you know, or see how they respond. Maybe they don't die. Maybe they're trying a new drug treatment. Exactly. Um, and But I think then, you know, in that way, it is unethical shipping these monkeys like this, having to hold them and like, there's these, like the fights that break out, they're obviously not great. Obviously, yeah. um, yeah, obviously not ideal. Um, not something that everyone probably feels super sound about. At the same time, I think, um, it's incredibly necessary, especially looking at a time like this where it's, you know, the late eighties, like now there are certain ways where they can, you know, like create from stem cells, like small like skin patches or you know maybe like liver cells something like that but i think actually like you look at the case of it was just in the news that man who had the pig's heart yeah. um, implanted um or put in and you know to be able to do that um science they had to put pig's hearts in multiple baboons they had to yep. try to use baboon baboon hearts as repla- replacement for a human heart um, and I think it, you know, I think it becomes much more, it, much less black and white and it's much more of a gray area. Um, cause cool. I think the animals and animal testing, it saves countless human lives yeah. in the long run and countless animal lives. I think that there, um, there is something called like a bunny hemorrhagic disease that's been spreading West, um, that they just came out with a vaccine for actually for um pet rabbits and you know for sure they use animal testing yeah. in that and because of that it gets to save how many bunny lives you know so it's kind of it's very very tricky um you know obviously i wish that um and i hope that all of the monkeys could be well kept um you know in yeah. transport when they're caught all of that. Um, but I think it is also kind of like a necessary part of medicine. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, that's exactly, I would say it's a necessary evil. Like it's definitely an evil, like it is horrible what we have to do and what we do to these creatures. But on the flip side, like you said, I mean, this is a life-saving critical, critical research that just can't be done otherwise. I mean, your alternative is human subjects. And I think, you know, like, I think people generally find that to be much less ethical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say most I people would not people be down. People are not down. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Now, if that was fine and people were down, then I think you move into a lot of other ethical questions, of course, about like <laughs> what's more ethical. Um, now, do I think that, you know, we necessarily need to test like 10 million different shades of pink eyeshadow on monkeys, rabbits, and dogs? No, <laughs> I think maybe, you know, animal testing is best for medical reasons, but yeah, you know. I would agree with that. I mean, the, the, the thing is like, I guess the thing that makes it okay to me, for me personally, and, and my moral, you know, framework is the human lives. And like you said, other animal lives that you save by doing it. You're not saving anyone's life by like dripping your baby shampoo into like a rabbit's eye for like eight hours that's unnecessary yeah you know like you probably could have just used some human test subjects for that but however right they have changed a lot of animal testing laws since cosmetic animal testing was far more normal and um unfortunately also in certain countries (laughs) china um, <laughs> it is illegal to sell products without being tested on animals. So I think that, you know, that's more of an issue than the cosmetic companies itself at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, cause then there's becomes a lot of cosmetic companies that, um, have overseas brands, um, or national international brands that, you know, they have to then keep animal testing to sell in a ginormous country. Um, yeah, but how much of your morals are you willing to like trade away for access to the Chinese market? I think that's a question that a lot of business leaders should be asking themselves on a, it's a regular basis. It's a serious question, I think, especially when it comes to these like very like ethical dilemmas. Um, yeah, but- and you can look at there's tons of parallels to that, right? It's not oh, just yeah. cosmetics, and I won't go on a China rant right now, but you know, <laughs> it, it's things like um, even like tech companies, right? Like if they are wanting to access the Chinese market and the billions of dollars there, they have to censor, right? They have to like mm-hmm. suppress free speech. They have to uh, plug into the surveillance state. And, um, you know, I-, I hope that those leaders have- think long and hard about the ethics. And I won't make a moral judgment on any particular call without having the details of it, but I just hope they're thinking about that long and hard. They're not just seeing the spreadsheet and getting like the you like the cartoons where the dollar signs go in their eyes and they're like oh shit yeah and i will say for animal testing at least in the united states and canada like there are very stringent rules around how you can use animals and what protocols have to be in place um i don't know what rules there have been since the making of this book but there are now i think they call I only remember it as Iocook, um, but you have to have like very strict protocols that you follow with Iocook. So what are you testing? How is it going to cause the animal pain? Um, And what are you going to do to mitigate the pain? And like, who do you have on staff? Who's in charge of deciding what the pain is that you're going to cause in this animal? Um, I think it's IUCC. Iocook is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee which is a committee within the National Park Service, and they provide oversight for the human care and use of wild vertebrate animals in research, teaching, and training in parks. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, you have to – it's, like, a pretty serious protocol that you now have to follow um, to make sure that, you know, if something goes wrong, 
what happens and you know you are thinking about the pain that you're causing but yeah anyway it's still a again hard ethical dilemma yep Okay, so now we need to take an accelerated intro to what's going on in Reston. So basically, you know, yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut to the chase and spoil okay. it a little bit. But we, they get the shipment of monkeys. Two of them are dead in their shipment. They're kind of getting word from other monkey houses in the states that they're also getting shipments of a bunch of with dead monkeys in them, an unusual number of dead monkeys. Yep. Um, and there's I think this one um, that somebody had gotten a shipment of their next. Shipment on November 1st at the Reston um, Monkey House. Uh, 29 deaths out of 100 monkeys. Um, it's crazy. So it's a third are dead. So they know something. Something's weird. Something's up. Yep. Um, so then monkeys basically continue dropping dead. And then the, the manager of the colony, uh, the pseudonym he gave him is Bill Volt. He basically calls that vet Dan Dalgard. And he's like, hey, we need to check it out and see what's going on. Um so they do a couple of necropsies in in less than ideal situations. Yeah, and, and then they send um, samples, blood and liver samples, to um, U.S. Emerid. Yep. Um, to a guy called Peter Jarling, who was one of the civilian researchers at U.S. Emerid. Yeah, yeah. Um, one quote I will read here though is that you know, kind of a little like. They definitely weren't taking it. The monkey house was definitely not taking it as seriously as it needed to be taken. Um, the samples sent to the um, U.S. Emerald was um, bits of meat wrapped in aluminum foil, like pieces of leftover hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ice around it was tinged with red and had begun to melt and drip. Um, the samples included um, blood serum that's basically shipped in a whole mess there's like blood in the container yeah they basically took a cooler put some ice in it wrapped the samples in tinfoil and threw them in the cooler and then shipped them to dc right and then the people even in in dc were then like haha good thing this isn't marburg (laughs) (laughs) uh when they got the sample because you know kind of commenting on like this is incredibly dangerous good thing this isn't bad um at this point, they think it's uh, a disease called SHF, simian hemorrhagic fever, which is another hemorrhagic disease, but it only affects monkeys, simians. Yep. Um, and then they kind of do some more digging. It's not um, simian fever. Um, they kind of find, like, uh-oh, like, these cells are all, like, blown to bits in all of the samples that they've seen. Um, it kind of, like, looks horrible in here. Um, the two, Peter Jarling and another his colleague of his, kind of like take a whiff of the samples that they get, just because it's commonplace um, to kind of whiff a sample to see if it's gone bad. Yeah, they basically they when they after they culture the virus, they look at the the test tube or whatever it is that's holding the sample, and it's it looks so fucked up that they think that it's contaminated, like with some other bacteria, and it's gone bad. But they don't smell anything um, with mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but then they go on. They're looking at the cells um, now. I believe this is Peter Jarling. Um, I think it's uh, it might be Tom Geisbert, the um, the intern guy who was the electron microscope operator. Um, it just refers to him as. He- oh, yeah, I think it's Tom. Anyway, um, you're right. It was Tom. Um He's looking at the cells from the monkey um, that they were sent. 
um, the cell was a mess. It wasn't just dead. It had been destroyed. It was blown apart and it was crawling with worms. The cell was wall to wall with worms. Some parts of the cell were so thick with virus, they looked like buckets of rope. There was only one kind of virus that looked like rope, a filovirus. Um, so then this guy, his man is like, okay, this is a filovirus. Um, he kind of goes into like, he has this initial reaction. He's freaking out because he just sniffed this virus. He's like, oh my gosh, I think it is Marburg. Like time to panic, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, they're not sure what to do because they don't know exactly what it is. They don't know, like, do we tell our boss and go to the slammer? But of course, as we talked about, nobody wants to go to the slammer. Yep. Um, so then he escalates it to Peter Jarling because at this time, this Geisberg guy is just an intern. Yeah. He's an he's intern, intern and he's like sniffed this thing because his boss told him to the other day. And then he's now looking at it and he's like, holy shit, this is Marburg. Right. And then I, that in and of itself kind of leads to um, like slowness, slack in the chain. It basically slows the process of people taking this seriously. Um, Cause then everyone of course goes like, oh, the intern says it's, it's like Marburg, except not Marburg. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, you know? Um, right. And, and, you know, Marburg in Washington, D.C., like, come yeah, on. They're like, like no way. Yeah. You know, like, kind of, it's kind of like all, all signs point to this kid is over-exaggerating. Um, however, more people look, they do more tests. Um, he kind of sends, like, that picture of Ebola out to people, what he finds in the cells. Um, yeah, Peter Jarling goes and he runs, there's some sort of sp- special test that you can do with the he takes the actual yeah the known ebola cells and he compares it and he does it with like marburg ebola zaire and ebola sudan and the ebola zaire test comes up positive twice yeah so he's like this is fucking ebola it's not even marburg right so then now that the intern's not saying it now everyone's like oh shit the intern was right something is wrong here and the other reason why they weren't believing it also is because these monkeys came from the philippines and the only known cases of Ebola were in Africa. Yeah. So they were like, you know. Or had originated from Africa. Yeah, had originated yeah. from Africa. So at this point, they're confident that it is Ebola and they're basically escalating it up the military chain of command. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then once one thing that I also found interesting is once they confirmed, okay, like this is Ebola, it's in the United States. They have to play this game of do we contact the CDC? Um, whose jurisdiction does this become? Who's, you know, who's going to be in charge of um, this, basically? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so basically, the Army's mission was to defend the country against military threats. It's like, is this virus a military threat? And they were having a meeting trying to discuss it, and they're basically worried about this political problem. Um, and the problem is with the CDC in Atlanta because the CDC has a mandate from Congress to control human disease while the army doesn't exactly have a mandate to fight viruses on American soil, but the army has the capability and the expertise to do it. You know, we talked in the previous one about how Gene Johnson had accumulated like this massive stash of like hot zone (laughs) equipment from his like, uh, experiments in Ketum cave. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, all of this stuff, but basically, you know, here's a quote from the general in this, 
uh, situation. The army doesn't have the statutory responsibility to to take care of this situation, but the army has the capability. The CDC doesn't have the capability. We have the muscle, but not the authority. The CDC has the authority, but not the muscle. And there's going to be a pissing contest. Um, And in the opinion of General, you know, the General, General Russell, this was a job for soldiers operating under a chain of command. You need people who are trained in biohazard work. You need people who are young, without families, who are willing to risk their lives. They'd have to know each other. They'd have to be able to work in teams. And they had to be ready to die. Which is why he felt, you know, soldiers were the right people for the job and not uh, civilians. Which I think is true. Yeah. Good call. Um. Yep. So then, you know, he talks through this whole political thing about how they navigate that, you know, with uh, the CDC and also with uh, the primate house itself. Because they're a private company. The vet is a little skeptical of letting the army and the feds come into his property because he knows once they're in there, like he's lost control of the situation completely. And yeah. he's worried about, you know, what are his bosses going to say and, and stuff like that. Well, and it's also the Bill Volt who is like the head of the monkey house, not just the veterinarian. He's also kind of like wary and they kind of deny um, the military access to the facility multiple times. Yep. Um and in fact, they um, eventually more monkeys begin to die at this facility. And so Nancy Jacks and the military, they want a sample of these monkeys. Um, and they try to go to the monkey house and ask for samples. And um, and then that kind of unfolds a hilariously terrifying situation, I would say. Um, yeah. So basically, um, they're at, waiting at this gas station parking lot because... Dan Dalgard was like, you can't come to the place. You're going to go wait in this other gas station. And we're going to send a guy to you. Yeah, I'll send a guy with the samples. Yeah. (laughs) So they're waiting in this parking lot, all anxious and stuff. And um, this is basically what happens. Suddenly a blue windowless unmarked van turned off the road and pulled through the gas station and parked next to them. The van parked in such a way that no one on the road or at the gas station could see what went on between the two vehicles. A man swung heavily out of the driver's seat. It was Bill Volt. He walked over to the army people and they got out of their cars. I've got him right back here, he said, and he threw open the side door of the van. They saw seven plastic garbage bags sitting on the floor of the van. They could see the outlines of limbs and heads in the bag. CJ said to himself, what is this? Nancy gritted her teeth and silently pulled in a breath. She could see how the bags bulged in places as if liquid had pooled inside them. She hoped it wasn't blood. What on earth is all of that? She exclaimed. They died last night, Volt said. They're in double bags. (laughs) They're in double bags. I have to take a moment to laugh at. You're like, oh, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. We just double banged it. So these are basically like... Like Ebola monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Double <laughs> bagged in garbage bags. <laughs> he says he's washed the bags with bleach. But again, as like pathologists and researchers, these people are just like stunned. Like they don't even know how to respond to yeah. this. Who normally handle what could be this agent in spacesuits. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like and pressurized facility. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, one interesting thought I was, was this little like political thing that happens between Nancy Jackson and CJ, where CJ is kind of pushing her um, because 
They're both division chiefs at the Institute. He had a higher military rank than her, but he didn't, she didn't like report to him. So he wasn't her boss. Um, and he was kind of giving her a look like, you know, you need to put that in your car. And this it's is what like she who says. who wants to take the dead monkeys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is what she says. I'm not putting that shit in the trunk of my car, CJ. As a veterinarian, I have certain responsibilities with regard to the transportation of dead animals, sir. I can't just knowingly ship a dead animal with an infectious disease across state lines. Dead silence. A grin spread over CJ's face. I agree that it needs to be done, Nancy went on. You're a doc. You can get away with this. She nodded at his shoulder boards. This is why you put on those big eagles. (laughs) Another perfect example of, like, hell yeah, Nancy Jax. (laughs) Yeah, Nancy Jax is a badass. My favorite character in this whole situation, for sure. Absolutely. Um, But anyway, they get the bags in. They go. They take them to Usamrid. They dissect them. And all of the necropsies are pretty much inconclusive. They could be Ebola. They could be SHF. They could be something else. Um, they basically have, like, weird... I think a lot of the necropsy kind of comes back as they're not bleeding out in the areas where it's expected that they're bleeding out. They kind of have, like, weird, like, clotting spots and places, but not, again, where they're expecting it. Um, it's not the telltale signs of Ebola. So it kind of just leaves them with a ginormous question mark yep um but then that carries on they kind of you know there continues to be problems at the monkey house they see because it's inconclusive they're not going to say like nothing's wrong with these monkeys something's up they don't know what um more monkeys die um somewhere in there somebody gets sick yep um one of the caretakers at the monkey house Yep. He goes to the hospital with some unknown condition. He has a heart attack. He has a heart attack, yeah. And then they're kind of like, okay, um, Ebola is going to lead to a lot of clots. Like, did he throw a blood clot, which led to a heart attack? And so that's when the monkey house finally takes it seriously. And they're like, okay, (laughs) we have to hand this over. Um, Yeah. I think another really interesting aspect of this is, like, they're trying to avoid, like, a mass panic and hysteria that would happen if, like, Ebola was in the U.S. So, like, they're, they didn't tell, like, the hospital or the people, like, that this dude has a possible exposure to Ebola. What the vet instead tells the guy at the hospital is, if you notice anything unusual, call this guy at Usamrin and please talk to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sketchy um but i mean it makes sense right like you can't have like they talk about you can't put all of this hysteria out here like you're gonna have people flooding yeah out of this place into washington dc it makes this sudden like serious alarm um when they don't know what's going on right um Um, so then basically what happens is they set up this whole operation similar to using a lot of gene johnson's equipment from Africa, all that, like, the portable spacesuits and stuff like that, the portable, like, you know, uh, decontamination stations, and they set up inside of the monkey house to do uh, uh, an operation. So basically what they're going to do is go in, euthanize all of the monkeys, clean the whole place out, um, bleach everything, all that sort of stuff, and they try to form a sort of, like, strike team to do this. Um, 
one interesting thing is that somehow this leaks to the press. And so, like, they start getting, like, TV vans and stuff there. So the army guys have to figure out how to conduct this operation without letting the public see that they're walking around in spacesuits inside of this, like, little office park in uh, the suburbs of D.C. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so they kind of have to go, yeah, they all set up all of these U.S. Amaranth people. Um, Nancy Jacks and Jerry Jacks are both people who are in charge of this situation. Yeah. Um, and there's um, Nancy Jacks is at one point, you know, kind of warning all of these um, her these people that are working under her, um, the young army, the guys, young army basically guys, guys exactly and women. About how to work with this animal. She says animals that are clinically ill with Ebola shed a lot of virus. Monkeys move real quick. A bite would be a death warrant. Be exquisitely careful. Know where your hands and body are at all times. If you get blood on your suit, stop what you're doing and clean it off immediately. Um, with bloody gloves, you can't see a hole in the glove. Um, also, you know, don't drink many liquids. You're going to be in your spacesuit for six hours. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Another real crazy side note is, is these guys, I think they called them the T-94s or the Tango 94s was this like group of the army who, who were trained in this that went in to do this because they were in spacesuits. The army doesn't consider it to be like hazardous work, so they weren't getting like hazard yeah, pay for this. Some of the people pay. who are going in here, I don't remember what it said, but it was something $7 like an hour. yeah, seven dollars an hour to go into a monkey house in a spacesuit that's monkey house is filled with Ebola, and you have to capture and euthanize all of the monkeys from the cages. Which I've also like I've talked to people who have worked with monkeys before. Monkeys are insanely smart obviously and very strong yeah um, very very strong very sneaky um <laughs> not like kind of an intimidating animal to work with i would say <laughs> for sure um, in, a lo- in a lot of ways it's almost like a cross between like a human and a dog right like it has yes. like intelligence and cognition closer to a human but it has like the quickness and like the bite strength and the teeth of a fucking dog yeah and like the inability to reason yeah you know like you can't talk to the monkey you can't talk to the dog if either of them feel threatened they're probably gonna bite you yeah um and that's especially if you're says. going in with like sticks full of ketamine trying to poke them um <laughs> they're not gonna be happy with you yeah generally <laughs> that's another one okay when they're talking about how they're doing these euthanasias they basically have to get one guy has a sort of like a collar thing on a stick that he's using to restrain it if you've ever done animal stuff it's almost like a shepherd's hook kind of a thing so one person with this long stick is like holding the monkey's head and the other person has like a syringe literally on like a, another long stick and they have to try to give him the I am shot. That seems incredibly difficult to do. Oh, absolutely. Right. And then I think one thing that they talk about is and that happens here is there's a couple times where obviously the injection at that point isn't done like the most properly maybe they do it a little bit more like in less of the muscle and more of like the skin or fatty tissue which means the medicine like um dissolves into the bloodstream at a different rate than what's supposed to be normal so they actually there's a situation where like they're going to euthanize the monkey she's trying to give it like the injection in the heart and the monkey starts moving on the table 
Um, That's crazy. Yeah, which is then, you know, kind of, then they're freaking out, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, but so... I think one thing that's interesting with this is they, the, um, Dan Delgard kind of also another thing that he preps all of the, um, army people with, he tells them, um, kind of just tells them how the monkeys get sick, what, what the turnaround looks like. Um, they get a little bit depressed, they go off their feed, and then in a day or two, they are dead. Um, so it's just like a far less than five day process between when you have a normal monkey um, between a dead monkey. Um, so it's very quick. Yep. Um, and then another, there were 450 monkeys alive in the building. Um, in the monkey house, the air handling equipment had failed for good. The air temperature in the building had soared beyond 90 degrees and the place had turned steamy, odorous, alive with monkey calls. The animals were hungry now because they had not been fed their morning biscuits. Here and there, all of the room in rooms all over the building, some of the animals started stared from glazed eyes in mask-like faces, and some of them had blood running from their orifices. It landed on metal trays under the cages. Ping, ping, ping. Jeez. Um. Yeah, to set up, kind of, you know, and then they kind of they have to go through and they have to euthanize 450 monkeys because that's that, brutal what it turns into is they um you know you have to euthanize these animals but um one thing that they don't like um jerry jacks later says in here um to uh the same group of people remember the veterinarian's creed you have a responsibility to animals and you have a responsibility to science these animals gave their life to science they were caught up in this thing. It is not their fault. They had nothing to do with it. Um, and then he kind of goes, be careful. Um, you basically, they have to tell all of these people that um, this is a horrible and incredibly hard thing that you have to do. Um, this is going to be, you know, some of the worst days of your working life, having to do this job right now. But um, if we don't euthanize these monkeys... An unknown number of them will die a horrible death. Um, and it could leak and infect <laughs> people in the community. Um, yep. I thought that was a great, you know, quote and, and you know, bringing in the veterinarian's creed to try to say like, hey, listen, this is why we have to do this. And I thought the thing too to say like, you know, these monkeys just got caught up in it. Like it's not their fault is... is um, a good way to do it but yeah i can't imagine that that's got to be the emotional toll um just i don't know imagine going home after that day of work right after you've like deconned and and all of that stuff and and you go and you sit in your living room and like you have to talk to your family you know probably no one's talking about compassion fatigue at this time (laughs) in history you know like especially not for veterinarians you know (laughs) yeah especially not for army veterinarians especially not them um oh yeah that's tough that Mm -hmm. is tough yeah i Um, can't imagine that and kind of like as things go on it kind of you know a monkey i think one of the crazy things like there's an escape monkey (laughs) that happens here and then they kind of have to deal with that it's like okay there's this room of like 70 monkeys 
one of them is just loose in there. Um, and of course, you know, they're all in spacesuits. They have like this little window <laughs> where they can look through. The air doesn't work. Everyone is foggy <laughs> in their spacesuits. Um, they're sweating. Um, you know, like the air never turns back on in yeah. this building. Yep. Um, which I think, again, another horrible thing and another reason why they kind of turn, it's like, we have to euthanize these monkeys. Like, because, um, right, it's 90 degrees in this building. It's going to exacerbate any fever yep. that these monkeys have or will get. Yep. Um, and the spread. Right? And the spread. Exactly. Um, it becomes a perfect breeding ground for just nasty, nasty. Yeah nasty things um they kind of again they go once they're um starting once everything has been um they say on december 7th the last monkey was killed in bag bagged and people began deconning out um they <laughs> are starting to go through and just bleach the shit out of everything in this building um they find um, monkeys in the freezer. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Here's um, Dan Delgard. Um, oh, no, not Dan Delgard. This is um, Jerry Jacks. He says, um, Gene, Gene Johnson, you're not going to believe what I found in this freezer. I've got 10 or 15 monkeys. <laughs> um, <laughs> um yeah, so they're going to have to, they then have to then take, like, they're like, what the hell? Like, why were there just 15 monkeys in the freezer that nobody told us about at this facility right now? <laughs> um, so then they kind of have to, like, they're like, shit. And now they have all of these samples that they have to go through back at U.S. Emerald facilities. Yep. Um, and they have to go through and they have to biopsy, necropsy, all of these monkeys. Yeah. Um, and, and so what it ends up being is a new strain of Ebola that is distinct from Ebola, Zaire. Yes. Um, so where is it? I marked this to read this quote. Um, okay, I'll let you find it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one other, while you find that, one other thing, really scary moment that stuck with me from the uh, the operation in the monkey house was that um, one of the, uh, like the privates or something, one of the women who's working there helping with all the euthanasias and whatnot, um, gets delayed. I think it might've been to do with the monkey who like woke up while she was euthanizing it. And then her air is about to run out. Um, but they like, don't have like, she doesn't have enough time to get through the decontamination and there's like the people on the other side there's like all the cameras and shit so she can't like go out they can't get anyone to get in and like literally with like a minute or 30 seconds to spare before she would have just run out of air they managed to get her backup battery and she manages to get out and then i think she then has to go into like the van which is like their little changing station and like someone like no one remembered to give her her clothes and all of this scuffle so her and someone else are just like lying in the van for like hours after almost running out of air while they're waiting for the press to fuck off so they can like come out and like get dressed god and yeah. she's getting paid like seven bucks an hour damn oh 
Um, so this is um, Nancy Jack again. She's at U.S. Emerald. They're going through um, tissue samples, um, samples of these monkeys from Reston. Um, the cells got bigger. The dark specks became angular, shadowy blobs. The blobs were bursting out of the cells like something hatching. Those are big frat bricks, she said. <laughs> they were Ebola crystalloids, which um, I'll define crystalloids here just to add. I'm sure not everybody understands what a crystalloid is. Um, the, sorry. A crystalloid or brick is a pure crystal-like block of packed virus particles that grow inside a cell. Um, also known as an inclusion body or crystalloid. Um, the Ebola's, they were Ebola crystalloids bursting out of the lungs. The lungs were popping Ebola directly into the air. My scalp crawled and I felt suddenly like a civilian who had been um, something, who had seen something that maybe civilians should not see. Um, these lungs are very hot, uh, Nancy Jack said in matter of fact voice. Um, You see those bricks budding directly out of the airspace of the lungs. When you cough, this stuff, this stuff comes up your throat in your sputum. Um, that's why you don't want someone who has Ebola coughing in your face. Um, yeah. So it's kind of... Um, maybe... Uh, you see here how Ebola has adapted to this lung. It's budding out of the lung right straight into the air. Um, Yeah, um, which is kind of where they find um, it's basically, you know, Ebola can travel into the lungs. They kind of really verify this is what has happened. Um, in March 1990, while well, the second outbreak at Reston was happening, the CDC slapped a heavy set of restrictions on monkey importers, tightening the testing and quarantine procedures, which is kind of just a little random addition of. Which is good. Seems like a good idea. Yeah. That's a, this is a place where I'm all for uh, government intervention. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think one interesting th thing about this related to government intervention is like, I think it's a good reminder if like, you know, why we pay taxes, why we have a military budget, why we have the government. You know, there are things that no civilian agency or private business is equipped to deal with. Um, yeah. I mean, if that, it weren't for, like, the hoarding nature of Gene Johnson, like, it's unsure if any government agency would have been prepared right. as quickly to <laughs> handle this. I hope Gene Johnson was able to take this and be like, all right, Army superiors, we need to keep this shit on deck. We need a full supply of this stuff. We need to check <laughs> it regularly. Um, yeah. Biosafety level four uh, lab. But that's basically the book. Oh, one last thing I want to go into on this book is one thing I thought was really cool is this author, Richard Preston, the crazy bastard that he is, takes a trip to Ketum Cave. Yeah, that's how he wraps up the book is he kind of goes over his experience and he tries to go and get samples at Ketum Cave. Yeah, he gets a, a space suit from someone and he goes out there with a guide. They camp in the same place that Charles Monet camped. He puts on a spacesuit. He 
ventures into the cave. He tells his friends with him, like, if I don't come back in an hour, leave. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes in there, which after doing all of the research and learning all of the horrors of the virus to then say, like, I'm going to go into that cave just for curiosity takes a different kind of person that that's a journalist for you you know as a journalist for you for sure that's high quality journalism yeah um he does have there is a follow-up book um on the ebola outbreak um in the 2010s like 2013 right 2013 yeah it's uh an excerpt from crisis in the red zone um is what he has in here yeah um that came out in 2019 so a lot of much more up-to-date information um, I'm not sure if we said this in the last, last podcast, but with the last um, more recent Ebola outbreak, they did um, come out with and solidify the use of a vaccination for known Ebola strains. Yeah, so. I, I think it's like there was some technicality that I read that it was like it helps treat the symptoms, but it's not a vaccine or maybe it does it helps with yeah. antibodies, but it's not a full vaccine or something. But I think it's like they a- have some treatments now. People aren't going out and getting Ebola vaccines. It's not, like, on the list of you get, like, a polio vaccine or whatever. Yeah. The mumps vaccine and then also Ebola um, (laughs) to go to school in, like, I don't know, Indiana. Rest in Virginia. Rest in Virginia. They're not requiring that vaccination, but um, treatments. Yeah, maybe vaccinations was the wrong word, but whatever. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I hope... Y'all enjoyed this long <laughs> Ebola journey with us. We yeah. love this book. Um, I, I I love this book so much. I want to make that like a stronger statement. I don't think we actually said it in this episode because we said it in the last one. But yeah. the book is The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing book. This is one of the best books I've read in recent memory. Um, the only book I've read around now that I've liked as much as this book was Dune, which I just read and I'll probably be talking about with Ion sometime soon, but totally different books. But this thing is a page turner. It's amazing. And you should definitely go read it. Like the way that he establishes a narrative and he gets in the heads of all of these people. I think it's very rare to read a nonfiction book that's so readable and really lets you get in the heads of the characters as much as he does. Yeah. And he has a lot of other books. I actually recently picked up unknowingly another book by him called Wild Trees. Um, that touches on um, the Redwoods and Sequoias. Um, and a friend of mine have, has also read, he has a book on smallpox, um, which they said was awesome. Um, really good. So yeah, keep killing it, Richard Preston. Yep. Good work. <laughs> Richie Rich. <laughs> Richie Rich. <laughs> um, this time I will actually put a link to some images of the Ebola virus particles in the podcast description because I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, and I said I would do that last time, but I didn't do it this time. Or I didn't do it last time, but I will do it this time. Um, yeah. Any any other closing thoughts on uh, Ebola and on the hot zone? Um, I think... I'm glad I'm not at a high risk of getting Ebola. I don't know if I'll ever really want to work with monkeys. Um, it kind of freaked me out to work with 
Um, <laughs> they definitely freak me out to work with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get freaked. I got freaked out when I was working with you and some wildlife stuff. When when like a goose would like flap its wings at me or like do the weird head dance. Yeah. The Let weird alone head a dance. monkey seeing you like accidentally looking a monkey in the eyes like a dominant male and it just freaking out and wanting to kill you. Right, instantly. and that thing has four opposable thumbs because they have foot thumbs that work much better than our foot thumbs. Yeah. And a tail. They're superior physical beings, no They're doubt. They're superior physical beings. I would not want to fight a monkey. If it um, wasn't for for our prefrontal cortex, those monkeys and would like be fucking us up. And like ability to use ketamine. <laughs> yeah. Both on them. And um, on ourselves. <laughs> but mostly for them, I would not fight a monkey. Um, I would not. No, you couldn't pay me enough to fight a monkey. You could pay me enough to fight a monkey. Um, well, but what are the parameters? Like with weapons or hand to hand? Anyway, um... <laughs> I hope everyone enjoyed this. <laughs> it was good. Um, again, I have taken eye on hostage. You may or may not see him again in the future. Um, please contact readmore.io. Contact um, at rdmr.io. Drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Maybe I will um, let Ion contact if enough people contact back. If we get enough emails... Margaret will release Ion from his captivity. Otherwise, if we don't get any emails, that's it. So Say goodbye to Ion. <laughs> <laughs> Mima, right, Baba, my parents, my family, I know you guys are listening to this. If you want to talk to Ion again, <laughs> send us some emails. Get your friends to send us emails. Yeah. <laughs> share the podcast and all of those things. But anyway, with that, good night totally and thanks doodly. for listening. <laughs>